often prompted to step out, take leaps of faith, that kind of thing. And so we want to break through fear of man because we're constantly assessing how people are perceiving us. Do they think we're loony? Do they doubt that God's going to show up? And what happens if he doesn't? What am I going to look like in front of this person after I pray for them? They don't get healed or if they don't understand a word and you know, all this stuff. That's typically how we associate fear of man. This particular side of fear of man is something that's kind of been brewing in me for the last few years, especially as I've been a high school teacher. Because if any of you guys work with younger people or students, you especially know that they do not care what you think of them. <laughs> and they will let you know if they think poorly of you. <laughs> so it's something that I've had to really wrestle with, not just in terms of that little niche of area of things, but also like, I mean, my relationship with my wife, how things operate here at this church, uh, how I'm even functioning in my family where I've felt maybe shame in particular things of my past, but, you know, didn't really get through that or whatever the case is. There's all these scenarios where fear of man is actually what is getting at us, but we've kind of disguised it as other things. And that's kind of what I want to talk about tonight. And this is, this is really tough because, and this is kind of a bold claim here, every single one of us here struggle with this. So this is really important. <laughs> I know that just from personal experience. It's something that I've seen. It's, it's not just a personality type. It's not, you know, people who've been through a certain experience and people who had this type of childhood. Man, it is just everywhere. It's deadly. And a couple of years ago, uh, to kind of illustrate this, uh, I, I picked up running probably like 10 years ago or so, like for fun. I know some of you are like, running for fun? What is that? It's not a thing. Like what? I know. Nicholas gets it. It's all good. Don gets it. Thanks. <laughs> but growing up, I, I wasn't like a long distance runner. Uh, I played a lot of other sports where it was like a lot of shifty moments, movements, okay? So uh, whenever I was practicing basketball, we'd have to like run suicides or walls, okay, where you sprint as fast as you can down the other end of the floor, stop real quick, turn around the other way. And what I actually developed in doing that was because I always stopped with my right foot and pivoted, never on my left, I actually started running on the outside of my foot all the time with my, on my right foot only, but not my left. So my left foot, I would run like you're supposed to, landing like in the, the middle of your foot, balanced, pushing off with your toes. But on my right foot, I would kind of run with like an awkward gait like that, always on the outside of my foot. So whenever I started doing long distance running, I, you know, you go to the shoe store, get fitted for shoes, all this stuff. And they're like, you need some really cushioned shoes because you're running like this. And so they give me the cushioned shoes. I run, I'm good, you know, not, not too big of a, of, of a deal. And then... One, uh, one training season that I was in, I decided I'd try a different shoe that was like a little bit less support. Whenever this shoe, I started breaking it in, it, had, it was a little different than what I had been because there wasn't as much cushioning in it. So I actually started getting more pain in my right foot only because of what I'd been used to doing, that it wasn't correcting it. And so I slowly had to balance my old shoe and my new shoes to slowly break in to running properly. And it took me about two years of switching between shoes 
so that now I'm able to run not on the outside of my foot, but leaning in the middle of my foot. That is a long story to tell you that this takes time to notice in ourselves the things we've done to train where we, we ha- I had to cope in doing one thing, but really that wasn't and develop an actual sensitivity to going, okay, I, I know I shouldn't run like that because in the long run, that's going to mess up my knee. It's going to mess up my hip. I won't be able to run when I'm older. And so by being intentional being, and being aware of how my foot landed, I'm able to run health, healthy now, which is awesome. And fear of man is exactly like that. Because we, we're going to repent of some things tonight, but it's, just, it's going to be a process of training our brains to not think of ourselves in some of these ways I'm going to describe us tonight, which is really Paul describing us. So, Oftentimes when we, I'll, I'll start with this. Any association we have with other people relating in relationships, we often resort to our ego or uh, self-preservation, um, needing to make sure people are perceiving me the way that I want them to perceive me, or putting myself up in a way that says, okay, you can only come right here because of this certain past or this hurt that I have. Fill in the blank of anything that we've ever been harmed by. Okay, that is something that's fear of man. I, I have ego, self-confidence, self-esteem, recognition with others. Those things are what we kind of creep in and how we start compensating our run in a way to, instead of relying on identity in Christ, rely on how we can present ourselves. Like I said, our cultural language for this is often fear of man, but this is kind of what I've started to see is a little different. Um, I want to actually go to 1 Corinthians 3. Actually, no, I'm going to start in verse, or chapter 1, start in verse 18. Okay, so Paul's writing to the Corinthian church, and it's a really funny letter because he actually starts off by talking about what seems like a rivalry between him and Apollos. But it's not actually between Paul and Apollos. It's the people who are making it a rivalry that says, oh, I'm a better Christian or a better Jesus follower because I'm following Apollos. And some people are like, no, nah, following Paul is the better way or we're baptized with Paul. And so this is how we want to be known. And it's this whole thing of people becoming an identity of who they were converted by that is trumping their identity in Christ. And so one thing I want us to think about, or this phrase, is when we do that, what we are doing is putting ourselves in a courtroom. I don't mean the courtroom where we are uh, accused as sinners before we come to the Lord and Jesus steps in and says, hey, that's my son, that's my daughter, I took this one for them, they're made clean. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about we are creating our own stage, our own courtroom, that says, I'm going to hold up these morals or these standards for myself. So for this one group, it was, I'm following Apollos. This is the standard that I'm setting for myself. 
and that standard is better than that standard that they follow Paul. So I'm better than you guys in this way. My morality, my judgment, my character, my sin is better than your guys's. <laughs> That's a lot what Paul gets at in some of these letters, especially like Galatians. So we often put ourselves in the courtroom, and that's where Paul is trying to get the Corinthian church to get out of. We do this in two ways. I often attempt to clear my own conscience by putting myself in the courtroom. What I mean by that is I will compare myself to try to clear my own conscience that says, okay, even though you know, my sin was like this. It wasn't like this person who sinned like this. So therefore, I'm going to make that sin worse. And then my own sin, either I'm not going to talk about it or I'm going to like kind of make that sin a bigger deal so that my sin isn't noticed. Uh, if you remember a few years ago, and this is, this is so common in politics and social media, there's a really good example of a, uh, actually, I'm, they're all examples. Take a public figure who said something stupid, okay? That's why I'm struggling because there's just so many examples right now, <laughs> okay? We can all think of one. Whatever that scenario is, there you go. The public backlash is people, not necessarily just on social media, but our perception is, wow, that's bad. And then usually on social media, we go and post about why it's bad. And there's different articles of insight as to why it's bad and how there's these cultural patterns as to how it needs to change and all this in-depth stuff. And really what we're doing is elevating someone else's sin to make it look like my sin isn't as bad as theirs. And I do this by my judgment of my friends. I do this by my judgment of other groups that aren't mine. So different church groups, different denominations. I start thinking okay, this scripture passage is so clear. This is what my church is so about. That church doesn't get it. We're rocking it here. We're killing it. I wouldn't go there. My attempt to clear my conscience in the courtroom that I'm creating is my attempt at crafting a little identity that preserves my ego, my self-esteem, Tune into the next presidential debate for more of that example. <laughs> but here's the thing. It's human nature. I, this, it's personal experience that I'm talking from. We all think in those subtle ways like that. And that's, it's never about me actually correcting that thing because in these larger examples, it's, I can't do anything about it. But it's about me trying to preserve that. That's what I'm getting at. The second thing as to how we often get in this courtroom is kind of related, but more specifically, how I expect someone to treat me or view me. So a lot of this for me was you, like, you know, coming to college or, you know, becoming a graduate. Like, I want to be framed in this sort of way, like, a college graduate, I would make an impact. So, so now when I have a job interview, I need to go in. Man, I'm, I'm going to make that person know that you better think I have, I have an impact on this world. Because you see my swag. You see everything that I got, everything that I got to bring. And if you don't recognize that. And, you know, we, we go on and on in this game in our heads 
where we're creating a persona that we want someone to perceive ourselves as. You need to treat me like this. When you say these words, that hurts me. When uh, we interact in these ways, I need you to, and we, we have a list of criteria for people to meet that are our standards to make our ego feel better. This is, this is real tough because it's so pervasive. Think back to that, my running example. Because I would, I'd run a mile and realize that I was running incorrectly. And then I, oh, 10 steps, correct. Oh, okay. And then back to the old way. Like it's, it's these thought patterns that I want us to, to notice. And let the Lord convict you right now of, of what these thought patterns are going to be. Because I can't necessarily tell you what they are. But the Lord will. He's gentle. He's going to do it. This is where we're getting into 1 Corinthians Okay, 1 Corinthians 18, we're going to read through 24. Here's what Paul says. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. It is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Who is the one who is wise? Who is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. So he's saying if you associate with an identity other than being in Christ, the cross is foolishness to you. I'm a big sports fan, as you already have been able to tell. I love it when my team is doing great. It's really easy to, to go to sporting events when the team is winning. So any identity group that I can get a part of that has the upper hand or has the edge, it's easy to flaunt that, whatever it is, whether it's a, a uh, moral value that is being higher elevated in culture than other ones. Or if it's even a physical group of people that I'm associating with, wherever the, wherever the case is, the type of job that I have. It's really easy, because even that's something for me where I started working at an alternative high school. So like I tell people that, and they're like, oh, that's hard work. And I'm like, yeah, it is. <laughs> I am a high school teacher working with tough students. Yeah, let me tell you about the ways that it's hard. I got stories. And they sound really holy and good. But all it does is just kind of stroke that ego. That says, I'm a, I'm a part of a group of people who are making a difference in the world. And that puts me just a little bit above others. That's not my identity rooted in Christ. That's my identity rooted and something I've created to make people perceive me the way I want them to. For this instance, it was Jews and Gentiles following Paul, following Apollos. But Paul says, those who are called, no matter what you were, it's foolishness unless you abide in Christ. 
So let's jump down to chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. I'm kind of doing like a power move through the first three chapters in Corinthians. He says, When I came to you, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. How's that for a ministry 101 prep? Hey, here's how you convert an entire city. He says, I didn't come with wisdom. I didn't come with a a bunch of charisma, an epic moment, a sweet team, culturally relevant, all this stuff. He says, no, I was just an avenue for the power of God to be revealed. That's what I operated out of. Anything other than that is, again, me trying to create this thing that I'm hoping will maybe impact someone or make them think of something different of me. It's pretty unconventional when you look at that as, this is how Paul does ministry. I came to you in weakness and fear and trembling. (laughs) My speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and power. And then in chapter 3, 11, he says, no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. So this is what he's getting at. All this kind of uh, thick rebuking in a way to say, this is what we started with right here. And now do you see all this kind of fluff talking to the Corinthian church that you've built up around it of what it looks like to be a Christian or what it looks like to minister or to walk in power. Foundation of Christ is constant. It is there. We can't be moved from that. So now kind of in the thick of things here. 1 Corinthians 3, 21. He says, so let no one boast in men. For all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos, or Cephas, or the world, or life, or death, or the present, or the future. All are yours, and you are Christ. And Christ is God's. This is how one should regard us. So he's, he's about to tell us right here how we should expect other people to view us. Hey, there's a Christian. This is what they're like. As servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. That's where change happens. That's where change happens in me and the people around me. Stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. For I am unaware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. 
So th- this is like the revolutionary thing that like hit me a few years ago with this. Because he says, we should be regarded as servants and stewards of the mysteries of God. As a matter of fact, whatever you think of me, it doesn't matter to me. I don't judge myself. You can't judge me. I'm not in the courtroom. I'm staying out of the courtroom. Jesus already entered the courtroom for me and took that trial. Therefore, whatever perception or whatever uh, thing we try to create around that, it doesn't last. It won't stand up in the courtroom because there's, when you play the morality game, there's people that are more moral than us. There's people that have done less sin. There's people who have impacted the world more. He says, I do not even judge myself, for I'm not even aware of anything against myself. So he says, even if I was trying to judge myself, it wouldn't be possible because I am not even judging my conscience. That's, that was why I shared that first point of we often put ourselves in the courtroom to make our consciences feel better. Gosh. <laughs> he says, I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in the favor of one against another. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? He's saying, look, you guys received Christ. <laughs> Take that. It's the, it's the parable of the, the man who finds the treasure in the field, goes back, sells everything he has to go buy, buy that field. He says, I will look like a fool to people when I'm standing on the corner trying to sell every single one of my possessions to go buy an empty field because of the richness of knowing what it is to be adopted, what it is to know that someone took your place with their sacrifice. It says, that's my kid. That's the place I want to live from. Uh, Worship team, do you guys want to come back up? In John 5, Jesus shares, let me get a drink, a passage that, you know, I'd read a million times, but it wasn't until a few years ago when this really, like, I just noticed these words. You know, it's crazy how sometimes that stuff gets hidden. Here's what he says, 537. The Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen. And you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he sent. You search the scriptures scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. So there, the Pharisees are creating something outside of Jesus that makes them right with other people. They are putting themselves in the courtroom to say, if I can meet these things of knowing the scriptures or being this moral, 
then I'll be good. Because other people will see me as good. But Jesus says, it is they that bear witness about me, the person. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, which just seems crazy <laughs> for him to say that. But here's the context of it. But I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If anyone comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? So there Jesus boils down the problem of the Pharisees to that one statement. You don't believe this because you're looking for glory from other people. You fear what they think about you. So your aim and your conversations, your relationships, any other grids that you live in or work in, whether it's online or in your place of work, you do that to meet other people's demands, meet their expectations. He says that actually robs you from receiving glory from God. That just stirred my heart so much when I, that first jumped out to me. Just like a broken heart because of the, the patterns in my life that I'd set up that had been so used to running on the outside of my foot of being constantly trying to get a perception. But then the flip side of it, of when you see that, you can break it. You can start to change it. That the God of the universe is so intimately aware and has given so much grace that he can bestow glory upon us. That's what makes the Christian life so sweet. It's because I'm freed from standing in a courtroom of getting others' perceptions filled to say, yep, yeah, he's good. He checks these boxes of morality and associations. And I say, Jesus covers me. Uh, there's a book that really opened me up to, the, to understanding some of these things. It's called The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness by Timothy Keller. It's really small, so you can read it in a day. <clears throat> One of the things he says in it that I just have to repeat to myself, like I literally remind myself of it when I'm just walking by myself or meditating on something that happened pre previous throughout the day, and I realized that I responded in a bit of pride to puff myself up. It's that I have a low opinion of the low opinion of myself. <laughs> so no matter, what, no matter what a person can accuse me of or frame something, or even if I'm accusing myself of something, that opinion to me is garbage because of my knowledge that Jesus has a different opinion about me. That's probably the one where I think a lot of us, whether it's guilt or shame or something, because when we, we feel the guilt of sin, it feels right that we should kind of punish ourselves with it, right? Like I, I need to do whatever or sit in this for this much time. 
And then we just sit in sin for years, constantly running the wrong way. And that's where God wants to break patterns of how we take in shame and guilt. Because Jesus' opinion about us is that he has made us clean and righteous, and we stand next to God the Father. He has seated us in heavenly places. That's the good news. That's where we get to share in our sonship, the place where he adopted us and says, you are like my son. I see you as I see my son. That's what that sonship means. And now we are the bride of Christ. We are the ones who get to be robed in purity and righteousness. I want you guys to stand. There's two things I want us to kind of corporately repent about, and I want you to do it by, do it by yourself. I'm not going to, like, lead anything particular. You can kind of mumble them under your breath or just silently. And feel, feel free to not even necessarily give words to this repentance. That's something I've even known in myself that whenever I'm even repenting, I need to, like, be all proper with it. I need to say the right words and sound, sound just super Christian, you know. Say Lord God enough times and he'll listen. And the times of sweetest repentance for me have been where I'm just on my knees and just saying, God, I need you over and over again. So this first one is let the Lord bring to mind if you, and if you got nothing right now it's totally okay again this can take process and time to learn how to walk differently see if the Lord brings to mind any ways that you have created an image of yourself other than your identity in Christ ask him God how have I tried to manufacture an identity? And as he brings it to mind, just let go of it. Hear what he says to you. the Lord's moving in that realm, just carry on in that respect right now and don't listen to me. But the next one, 
is how we are trying to preserve our own conscience by either elevating ourselves above others or punishing us, push, punishing ourselves with reminding of our sin and feeling more righteous because we've sat in the guilt or the shame and kind of keep doing it. Let the Lord remind you of anything here. God, thank you for placing us outside of the courtroom. I no longer need to judge myself. Or to, to paint myself in a way other than my identity in you. You have freed me from that burden because you call me your own. That is better than anything I can manufacture in this life. We're going to sing this next song and I encourage you to kind of approach it in a posture of repentance, but and the awareness of that other side of the repentance is how good the acceptance and graciousness of God is. Paul says in Romans, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So when you were the shame When you were the condemned, when you're the roughest you could ever be, God said, yep, that's the one I want to die for. Oh, I see them in that. He said, yeah, I, I see them in that. And that's not what they were made for. I will make them so much better. Let's sing this.